Wow, sounds like Moses now. The, uh, but yeah, you all are family, and, uh, and we're, we, we uh, pray for you often. Um, my relationship has been primarily with uh, Eric and his family, Eric and Marcy, and then Daniel and, and Alex, and we just uh, love what we hear about what the Lord's doing. And, and to, to see two churches come together, you know, that is of, of not of this world, that two churches uh, can come together and unify for the glory of God and for the sake of his kingdom. And so I praise God for that, but you all really should um, be thankful uh, for uh, the way the Lord has led you in, in this great work uh, for the king and for his glory. I want to tell you just a little bit about myself. We're going to be, I'm going to be, um, Eric told me that, that the Advent theme um, that you all are going to be teaching through is reconciliation. And I asked him if, uh, if he wanted me to like, fit in, uh, uh, preach a certain passage. And he said, no, nah, just whatever the Lord puts on your heart. So, so we're not going to open the Bible today. We're just going to tell great stories. No, we're going to open the Bible today. Um, I just finished teaching through 2 Timothy, where uh, Paul encouraged Timothy um, to, whether, to, to preach the word. Um, whether, uh, in season, out of season. Whether, you, whether you're ready or not, preach the word because the word is powerful and the word is used to rebuke, to reprove, and to encourage. And my prayer for you this morning is that you would be rebuked and you'd be reproved and that you'd be encouraged, not by me, but by the Spirit of God through the word of God. So just, I'm excited this morning to be here. Um, I want to tell you just a little bit about myself. Um, I grew up in a very uh, religious home. Uh, in a Catholic home, actually, where um, I had a, uh, an unhealthy fear of God, um, where I really didn't understand the grace of God and where I worked my way, worked and worked to try to get into the kingdom. And in today's passage, Paul is speaking to um, Christians, actually, those that have been saved by grace who want to continue earning their way, working their way um, to his acceptance. And I very much had that experience for most of my life until I bent my knee, or, or better yet, until God arrested me with his amazing grace. In my flesh, I'm a pretty judgmental guy. I'm a pretty judgmental guy. What I, and what I mean by judgmental is that I would tend to look down on and judge other people when their lives were not going well. Maybe judging somebody that had a divorce or judging somebody, a parent who had a wayward child or judging somebody that had, um, had financial issues. I figured that they were having those issues because they didn't have their act together. That they weren't living by the principle of retribution or they were living by the principle of retribution, that they were getting what they deserved. All of that changed, actually. About 10 years ago, I was a stockbroker for 20 years. Uh, that's, you know, that really qualified to be up here. <laughs> it doesn't at all. I was a stockbroker for 20 years. I was on the uh, 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 cover of Money Magazine, mentioned one of the top stockbrokers in America. Um, I did that for 20 years. And, and uh, God saved me while I was a stockbroker. And I actually took pride in... Um, in um, bringing financial help to people. And I took pride in having the big house and, and being able to be hospitable to a lot of people. 
ministry was primarily to wealthy people, people that were successful. My kids, you know, I had the, the, a wife that's beautiful. I had three kids that were behaved. They went to a Christian school, big house in the country club. And I tend to look down on people that maybe their lives weren't quite as tidy as mine. And then about 10 years ago, one of my sons at a Christian school got kicked out of a Christian school for smoking pot. And then they let him back in and he got kicked back out for cheating. And I started to recognize that, that um, I wasn't the perfect parent, that really anything good going on in our family was the grace of God. And then just shortly after that, after I left the brokerage business on, on top of the world financially, the Lord in his providence and in his kindness actually decided to turn my world upside down. And we had to file bankruptcy. We lost it all. And my viewpoint before that is that anybody that had to file bankruptcy was pretty much a loser and they had, they had it coming to them. So what the Lord did in that process is he actually softened my heart and prepared me to be a shepherd, one who knows that it is God's providence and that he is going to work his goodwill and purpose out in all of our lives and sometimes we can't explain it. So I learned that, that all bad predicaments are not always attributed to bad decisions and choices. But I also want to be careful because, because some of our situations some of the situations that we find ourselves in today are a result of simple choices. Something that I need in my life, and I want, I'm here today to, um, to encourage you that you need this in your life too, is that I need people in my life that are going to rightly judge me. Um, you'll never hear from me, don't judge me. In fact, what you're going to hear from me is, please judge me. Rightly judge me, biblically judge me, for God's glory and for my good. I need to be judged. And we're going we're gonna to talk about that here today, a, a subject that, that is really at the heart of reconciliation. Let me ask you this. What is your understanding of judgment? Not, not judgment like going to, to hell judgment, but the concept of being judged by another person. When you think of being judged by others, what comes to mind? Is there a right and wrong way to be judged by others or to judge other people? Let me just give you a little bit of context. It's always hard. We, our our um, discipline at, at Windsor Community Church, as I know it is here, is typically we teach through a book of the Bible. So I'm, I'm grabbing 10 verses out of one chapter of a letter that Paul wrote to the church. And, and that's dangerous because it's easy to do that and take it out of context. So I want to give you just a little bit of context of what's going on um, in Galatia and why Paul had to write this letter. The church in Galatia is being infiltrated by false teachers that, is, that are teaching regenerate Christians, genuine Christians, that they need to add to their salvation. That they were saved by grace, but they got to somehow keep working to stay in God's good grace. That's what's, that's what's happening here. Paul, throughout this letter, pounds home his case that not only are Christians accepted and loved because of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but that they are forever accepted and loved no matter how they might blow it. 
And that's good news for the Christian today because even though God doesn't see us as sinners, he sees us perfect, that we are still in our flesh suits that have a tendency to want to sin. And in our sin, God will never unfriend you. He will never kick you out of the proverbial kingdom. God doesn't love and accept us anymore because of our obedience and good works. On the other hand, this is just in case any of us here would misunderstand his position against legalism, he also drove home the point that one who is fully and forever accepted by the Father will desire to live a life of holiness. That there will be a different trajectory to our life, a different direction to our life. Not perfection, but a different direction. You see, God's grace does not give us license to continue sinning. And we're teaching today from Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, but I want to look back to chapter 5 just for a minute. And in chapter 5, Paul reminds the Christian, he's writing to you and I, the Christian, he reminds us that there's a battle There is a battle that is raging war in us, and it's a battle against the flesh, and it's a battle against the spirit. In the battle of our flesh, it's our sin nature, and it's against the spirit, which is our new nature, and this battle actually is a good thing, because if you don't have a battle, you may not be the Lord's. That the battle of flesh against spirit is evidence, actually, that we are saved. Because Satan wants to leave people alone that aren't saved, but he wants to torment us and lie to us and deceive those who aren't saved. I mean, to, to those that are saved, excuse me. The weight of victory in this life is not by trying harder, but by walking in the spirit. And I've got a, a metaphorical picture that, that has been helpful to me, that, that if you read the book of Acts, that, that, that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, continually talks about the apostles being what? Filled with the Spirit. But, but we know, as, as students of God's Word, is that once you are saved, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's no second indwelling of the Spirit. So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It has everything to do with walking in victory. And this, this metaphorical picture of a ship is what's helpful to me, that you and I, as Christians, that we are, um, we are I want to say stuck. We're not stuck, but we are, we are on this planet, this, this rock called earth, and we are on the seas of life as I like to think about it. And we are headed on the ship of glory to glory one day, on the ships of life. And sometimes the seas are calm. And sometimes the seas get rough. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Some of you are in the midst of rough seas right now. And some of you, are life is pretty smooth. Things are going pretty good, and we praise God for that. But you know what happens is when the sea of life gets calm, we relax. And, and, we, and, we, and we set our um, 
I'm going to explain it a different way. I'm going to start with the seas when they're rough. When the seas are rough, I'm on a ship. You're on a ship. You with me? Can you picture it? We're headed this way. Look that way. We're all in this ship. You know, you can imagine whatever you want there. There can be a hot tub on there. There can be um, somebody serving. There can be like a buffet, whatever you want. But it's a ship, and the ship has sails. And what are sails for? To catch the wind so that it propels the boat forward. And the ship also, on my ship anyways, it has oars. And when the sea gets rough, what I do is I grab a hold of the oars. And I panic. And I start rowing. I operate in the flesh. And what God wants us to do as believers who have the indwelling spirit in us is he wants us to, this is how we are filled with the spirit, is we raise the sails of surrender and submission to the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit isn't going to do a hostile takeover and just change us. We've got to submit to it. And the submitting to it is raising the sails of submission and surrender. And for me, when I put a death grip on the oars of life, I end up producing works of the flesh instead of works of the Spirit, and I ultimately make things worse. When I grab a hold of the oars, it's because I'm trying to produce my best life now, By changing my surroundings, by changing relationships. You see, when we grab a hold of the oars, it's we're trying to make things better. We're running from tough relationships. We're running from tough marriages. We're running from a church that maybe made a mistake. In chapter 5, Paul reminds the church that the secret of living a life that crushes the desires of the flesh is to walk by the Spirit or to by the Spirit. And that means that there's activity involved. Activity. You see, the gospel isn't against working. It's against earning. We can't earn our salvation, but we're to work out our salvation. When we do this, when when we are walking according to the Spirit or being led by the Spirit, it actually allows us, it allows you and I to live our best life now. While the Holy Spirit grows increasing fruit in us. This, these fruit producing steps or this process can be broken down into four categories, if you will. First of all, we need to, desire, we need to recognize the desires of the flesh. We need to know what we're prone to. Then we need to believe the gospel. Is my voice kind of going in and out? Yeah, is that because I move around too much? Okay, okay good. We're all right. Second, recognize the desires of the flesh. We need to recognize our sin, then believe the gospel. Believe the reconciliation. That God has a hold of us, and he will never let go. And that we have the power of the Holy Spirit to, to say no to the flesh. The third thing to do is let go of the oars. Let go of them. And fourth is by faith, raise the sails of submission and surrender to the Holy Spirit so that he can bear fruit in our lives in greater ways. All right, finally, today's passage. Today's passage is about helping one another when we're mired in sin or when we're spiraling downward in despair or brokenness or fear or anxiety. 
to help others who have a death grip on the oars of life. And this is a great season to be talking about this because a lot of you have, this is not, it's not the best time of the year. It brings up a lot of hard memories. How can we help others raise their sails when the storms of life are buffeting their mind and buffeting their heart? There's a lot at stake here, folks. There's a lot at stake here is that the When I look around the landscape of the church in America, it's no wonder that we're becoming a minority in this country. It's because Christians and the church don't look any different than the world. You got people like uh, a certain politician that professes faith in Jesus Christ, and a number of women have come up and accused him of sexual immorality. And instead of acknowledging it, he defends it. He denies it. Why would anybody want to be a part of Christ's church when we look exactly like the world? I want to give you a few principles pertaining to judging others that I want you to remember right up front. These are just three principles that I want you to take note of. That we are never to judge outsiders. What's an outsider? Somebody that has not professed faith in Christ. Why would we ever judge somebody that is unregenerate? What do we expect? What do we expect? I know without God's grace radically changing me, I don't know where I'd be. I'd be in prison. I'd be divorced. Number two, Don't ever judge another believer's motives. Don't judge their heart. Also, don't judge their non-sinful choices. We're going to be doing a parenting series in our church. We've got more millennials than one guy can stand. I love the millennials. I'm actually a baby boomer in a millennial's body. And... um, we, we're doing, a, we're doing a, a parenting series, and a couple of the topics that we're choosing is um, how to make decisions on schooling choices, and then how to have a dialogue with other young parents that have made different schooling choices. How not to just, it's, it's not sin, but we judge one another. How about vaccinating your kids? I don't know if that's a thing here. It's a thing in Colorado that people, churches divide over deciding whether to vaccinate their kids or not. I say just line them up like cows and let's just shoot them in the rear end. (laughs) But we shouldn't judge one another on that. It's not not sin. People are free to have their own opinion. But we are, yes, we are to judge one another's patterns and practice of sin. If Eric Lawyer or Daniel Nelm, who knows me well, If they see patterns in my life of sin, they have an obligation because they love me. Do this later, not not now. If something's coming to mind, can we like talk on the phone? (laughs) To, To judge me, to judge me 
because they love me and they want to have me restored to a right relationship with Christ and whoever I'm sinning against. Listen to what Paul writes to the church in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such one. For what, I, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This might be new information for you today. I don't know. My guess is it isn't. Maybe, though, you have always thought that Christians should never judge one another. God's word clearly states that Christians are to judge one another. But if that's all there was, if that was the end of the story, it would be chaos. We'd be the sin patrol, just following each other around. I would continually be admonished by other people. There'd be mudslinging, there'd be hurt feelings, there'd be disunity. So God has some very specific ground rules, or rules of engagement, if you will, for rightly judging one another. I want to go to another pretty radical section of Scripture, one that seems a little harsh, but these are Jesus' words in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. If your brother or sister sins against you, go tell somebody else. Go tell the pastor. Now, if someone sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. There's four steps here. If a brother sins, go to him. Gossip is killing the church. Go to him. If it can't be resolved, then the offended, bringer should, uh, offended brother should bring two or three others. Three, if, if steps one and two don't produce conviction and a desire to change, we bring it to the church. The final step is if it doesn't bring uh, conviction and a desire to change, um, we exclude the person from fellowship. Can I say this? We should rarely get to steps three and four. It should, never, it should rarely happen. Uh, we've been a church in Windsor, Colorado for 16 years. It's happened. Um, we've, went all, we've had to go all the way through step four once. I hated it. But we had to do it. For the purity of the, the church and for the sake of the sinning brother. Not to punish him. It's never for the sake of punishment. So Paul's going to walk, walk us through the purpose and process of rightly judging others. And I've titled this sermon, Gentle Restoration. Gentle Restoration. It's restoring a person to a proper relationship with the Father and the body of Christ should always, always, always be done gently and for their sake. Always for their sake. So it starts off in verse 1. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. If, if, if anyone is caught in any transgression. So there are no limits or qualifications. Anyone or anyone. Anyone or any. If anyone is caught in any sin. The Greek for caught means to be overtaken. So the, the sense isn't that someone was necessarily caught in the act. 
taught them. But instead, Paul paints a picture of someone sagging under a heavy load. They're, it's not, the, the heart of it isn't you catching them, but they are ensnared, that they are caught. They are um, burdened with, with, uh, with pain that is leading them to sin. The end goal is not to catch them, but to help them become free from the bondage of a particular sin or sins. There's two general categories of people in sin. Category number one, those who are weak. And these weak sinners are, feel helpless and ashamed. And the second category are those who practice and willfully commit works of the flesh and feel justified in their sin. And from my experience, and this is not my nature, because I'm, 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 I'm an admonishing kind of guy, but God is softening me. From my experience is that most Christians who are caught in sin are in the first category. They're broken. They've got hurts. They've got pain. There's, they're, they're carrying guilt and shame from past sins. But then they, they can quickly move into the second category where their heart becomes hardened and their sin becomes willful and they feel justified in their sin. So Paul tells us right from the beginning that our ultimate goal in rightly judging and admonishing a brother or sister is restoration, not punishment, not revenge, not repayment, restoration, restoring them to a right relationship with their heavenly father and others. To restore literally means to mend or repair. It describes the setting of a broken bone or repairing a dislocated limb. Even though it might be painful, pain is not the end. The goal is not to, to cause pain, but to restore the damaged body part to its former or intended condition. There's a sense here that the, that the wounded or sinning Christian is already sagging under the weight of their sin and our job is not to break them further but to restore them into a right relationship with the Lord and others. I just, I just had, um, can I take my coat off? I'm sweating, I'm sweating. The, uh, uh, today is December 3rd. On October 31st, on Reformation Tuesday, on Halloween, um, I was doing something that I shouldn't have been doing. Somebody should have um, judged me. Um, I was in the gym doing a one rep max deadlift at age 60, 385 pounds, just for the record. Had it up to, had it up to my knees. The guy behind me is yelling, stand up with it, stand up with it. And all of a sudden, Snap. My bicep tendon, my distal tendon, unattached from the bone and went up into here. It's a first world problem. $120 a month for a gym membership to do deadlifts and to tear your bicep off the bone. The surgeon, somehow when he was doing surgery, I don't know how he did this, but he took a picture of my arm while he was doing the surgery. I'm just glad he just didn't have his face in it like doing this. But he took a picture of it. And it was, it was open. I mean, I don't like blood. I don't like seeing stuff like that. But he sends me this picture and it's opened up. His goal was not to hurt me any further. I was already hurt. His goal was to mend me up. His goal was to restore me, 
to, to reattach my bicep. His goal is not to hurt me more. So, so we've looked at the biblical purpose of rightly judging and admonishing a brother and sister. The end goal, the, the end goal, the end purpose is restoring them. Now Paul describes the heart behind it. Paul says, do it, but you who are spiritual should restore a brother or sister in sin in a spirit of gentleness, not like Popeye. Popeye says, I can only stand so much and I can't stand no more, and I'm going to blast you. Not like Popeye. But as one who is spiritual, gentleness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. And Paul is saying, when you're walking in the Spirit, and this fruit is produced in you at some level, then you approach your brothers and sisters in sin. You who are spiritual, you who are walking in the Spirit, not in the flesh, restore the other person He's not saying that you need to be super Christian. He's not saying that you need to have your act together. I would never preach if that was the case. But he is saying make sure your own sales of submission and surrender are raised. Make sure that you are walking in the spirit before you move towards someone else. And he says in verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. How do we do this? Well, for, for starters, we recognize and we assume that our, that our brother or sister who is overtaken by sin has a burden or burdens. Don't assume that they're just uh, sinning maliciously. That they're willfully, assume that they're broken and hurt. Assume that they're weighed down by something or someone, some pain, some unbelief, some disappointment that is burdening him or her and causing them to give in to the deeds of the flesh. And then we're to come alongside and help sustain them, uphold them, support them. We need, we need to gently help them release the oars and raise the sails, and sometimes we're going to have to raise the sails for them. And when we bear one another's burdens, we, it says we fulfill the law of Christ, which is the new commandment that Jesus gave you and I. And what's a new commandment? John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you that you what? You love one another. That you love one another as I have loved you. That you also may love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And love is not... Ignoring somebody's sin. Love is gently going to them. Helping restore someone else to the Lord or back into fellowship with, with you or another believer requires the understanding of God's radical grace. That when you were dead, when you were wayward, when you were running in the opposite direction, he made you alive in Christ Jesus. He brought you into his kingdom. It's nothing you did. You were saved by grace. And he loved you by giving his life for you. And then even in your sin, he continues to love you and pursue you. In Galatians 5, 13 through 15, Paul says pretty much the same thing. For you are called to freedom, brothers. You are called to freedom, brothers and sisters. You are free in Christ. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through loving one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Biblical judging and admonishing can only be exercised through a loving heart and wanting the best 
for the transgressor. Pay attention to this. This is helpful to me, this next verse. Second half of verse 1, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. This, John Stott says this suggests that, that gentleness is born of a sense of your own weakness and proneness to sin. Whatever a Christian, whatever sin another Christian is caught in, you're not above that Christian. Keep a watch on yourself. When someone is caught in sin and you take steps to restore them, it's important to examine your heart and your motives first. To, to ask the question, particularly if the transgressor has sinned against you or a loved one, ask this question of yourself, am I moving towards this brother or sister because I'm ticked off and bitter or because I love them and I want the best in Christ for them? Another question to ask before you move towards this sinning brother or sister is have you forgiven them? Have you forgiven them? Let's be honest, when someone sins against me or my loved ones, I can justify righteous anger with no thought of forgiving first. Our, our first thought, my first thought is to let the person know how much they hurt me and how much they hurt my family. I want to get it off my chest that they really hurt us. And that may be okay to do, but if you haven't forgiven them first, I can guarantee you, 100%, money back guarantee, that you're not doing it for their benefit. You're doing it to get something off your chest. Mark eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus says, whenever you stand there praying and somebody comes to mind that has sinned against you, he says, forgive them. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And I'm not going to unpack that. That's a whole other sermon. Verses 3 and 5. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, you deceive yourself. Let each one test our own work, and then, then our reason to boast will be in ourselves alone, not in our neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. We should never approach our brother or sister in a prideful way that says, I'm above this type of sin, I would never do this. Paul says that's deceiving ourselves. When we're prideful, we will have the, we'll have the tendency to approach the fallen brother or sister with harsh judgment rather than a desire to see them restored. I think it was F.B. Meyer that once said that, when we see a brother or sister in sin, there are two things that we need to know. First, we need to know how hard he or she tried not to sin. And second, we do not know the power of the forces that assailed him or her. We also do not know what we would have done in the same circumstance. In verse 4, Paul says we're to test our work first. This is from examining and approving our works. We must make sure that our lives are right with God before we give spiritual help to others. We don't need to be perfect, as I mentioned earlier. There just needs to be a direction towards perfection. I'm going to read this. I thought I'd pass over, but I think I'm going to read it because it's important. The only way to truly approach others is, is through gentleness with a desire to see them restored. And, it's, and, and this is born in rightly judging our own weaknesses and sin. Jesus had something to say about this in chapter 7 of Matthew. You know this verse, but we take this verse out of context all the time. It says, judge not that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure 
you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? Jesus' words, he says, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly take the speck out of your brother's eye. Oftentimes our sin is worse than the sin we're wanting to point out to others. In verse 6, it says, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. I'm not going to go into that. Just keep um, giving gift cards to Eric and Daniel. And I'm going to actually skip down to, um, to verse 9 and 10, just for the sake of time. Church, Redeemer Fellowship of Tom's River and Redeemer Fellowship of Brick. Verses 9 and 10. Do not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Doing good in this context is rightly judging one another for the purity of the church and for the sake of the mission. Do not grow weary of doing good. It's, it's easier just to turn our eye. I remember back when, I was, uh, when the Lord was drawing me to himself and that I had gone to a promise keeper's deal. And they, were put, they put you in little accountability groups with other men that supposedly loved Jesus and loved me. And I confessed um, a horrific sin against the Lord and against my wife. And all these, all these guys could tell me is, brother, you are forgiven. Move forward. They didn't take any time to, to admonish me, to uh, help me raise my sails of surrender and submission. They gave me no tools at all to turn from my sin. And my sin actually continued. So don't grow weary of doing good. That, that loving each other is actually admonishing each other and judging one another rightly. So verse 10, so then as we have an opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So Paul tells us the best work we can do is to do good, especially to the brothers and sisters of Christ. Helping to restore our burdened brothers and sisters to a right relationship with God and to others. And I'm not a real big, like, acronym guy. There's some people in our network, I don't know if you're this way, Eric, but, like, have all these great acronyms to help you walk away remembering something. But, I, but I'm going to give you one anyways. And it's the acronym for BEAR, B-E-A-R. And I want you to remember this, actually. B, bear. Recognize that there is a root cause to someone's sin. Don't assume. Don't assume that they, that they are just willfully, belligerently um, turning against God and against you. Recognize that there's a root cause to someone else's sin. Try to understand their burden and help them heal and believe the truth of the gospel. That's where healing comes from believing the truth of the gospel. Help them release their death grip on the oars and remind them of the truth of God's promises to him or her as his adopted children. Bearing a sinner's burden is loving our neighbor at his core. That's B. E is examine yourself. Examine yourself. Understand that you are capable of the same sin. 
Forgive the person that you come alongside. Test your work and make sure you're walking in the spirit, not in the flesh. That's E. A, admonish. Yeah, admonish. The longer a bone stays broken or out of alignment or the bicep is disconnected from the bone, the longer it'll take to heal. That the scar tissue builds up. So don't let a brother and sister get away with growing scar tissue that comes from unrepentant sin that's born out of hurts and brokenness. Lovingly go to them. A is admonish for their benefit, not to get something off your chest. And it starts in private. And the hope is that it never has to go public. In our restore. Don't grow weary of, of doing this type of good. It's hard work. Serving one another when we're messy. God stopped at nothing to reconcile us to himself and to restore us into a right relationship with the Father. He stopped at nothing. It says in Philippians that, that, that he considered equality with God nothing to be grasped. That he, could, he, he let go of the glory of heaven so that he could come down and live the perfect life. That's what we're celebrating here. That he could die, the, he could live the perfect life, and that he could die the sacrificial death, that he could take your sin. He who knew no sin became your sin, that you might become what? The righteousness of God. God stopped at nothing to reconcile you and I to himself and to restore us into a right relationship with him, the Father. It cost him everything. We can learn from that. So Redeemer, it's so great to be a brother in Christ, a fellow sojourner, one who's been redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus, one in whom the Father has adopted into his forever family. It is good to be in Christ with you. Where that even though we are um, in these flesh suits and we are still prone to sin, that the Father no longer sees us as sinners. And I pray that the church here in Tom's River and Brick would continue to be purified. That you would not um, ignore one another's sin. But you would live in such close proximity with each other that you can observe one another's lives. And that you can joyfully and gently um, continue to restore one another into the relationship that God has created us for. You're already in the kingdom. This isn't the kingdom. But this church is part of the kingdom. And I, my prayer is that you would be a people in these churches that fight for unity. Not for the sake of Redeemer but for the sake of the Redeemer, for the sake of the glory of God, and for the sake of the mission, that many people would see that this church and that the Big C Church, the church in Colorado, is different. And we're not perfect. But we're forgiven. And out of that forgiveness, we will move towards perfection. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father, we bless you. And God, I, um, I don't know why you laid this, um, this text in this, uh, this sermon on my heart. Um, but God, other than I know that um, I am a, a man um, 
very much in process. That I am a man that is secure in your kingdom, who has been adopted into your forever family, not because of any thing that I did, but just the opposite. I was actually the ugliest baby in the orphanage when you arrested me by your grace and you chose me to be your son. And I pray, God, that we would all stand in that truth, that when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, by your mercy, you made us alive in Christ Jesus. And I pray that those beautiful gospel truths that we're celebrating this Christmas would give us an increasing desire to to uh, mortify the desires of the flesh and to want to walk according to the Spirit. For the sake of your name and for the good of your people. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.